0: music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore.
1: And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, sunny Davis day. And yes, I get to say that in November because looking out my window, it's gorgeous.
0: Spectacular. It's 50 degrees as we are recording this program on Wednesday, November 17th. It will broadcast on Thursday, November 18th. Today's high temperature will be 62 degrees and tonight's low will be 43. Last few days, We've been having something that us old timers in the area have been talking about. Wow, doesn't this remind you of the old days? Foggy every morning. I mean, really foggy every morning and staying foggy with that higher fog type of thing where it raises up and you're not in the fog, but still gloomy all the way into the early afternoon, barely burning off. And then, you know, just a a part of a day of sunshine, which has some impact on us.
1: I remember when I first came here, you know, (laughs) that we had, we had two weeks. Ah, oh, no sun. It was weird.
0: That happened actually. The, the record, the record was in the 1980s. We actually had a an episode of 15 days straight of dense fog. That it would only rise up a bit, so there was still that dense fog ceiling over us. I know this because my parents were coming up to visit. That those those days in the in the winter and in the summer, that was convenient for Dad's academic calendar my parents were cigarette smokers. We did not allow cigarette smokers in the house. So they went out onto the front porch to smoke their cigarettes wearing what was quite unaccustomed to these La Jolla residents, large overcoats in order to stand out there and smoke their cigarettes. One day in particular, at the depth of this fog event, I would call it, the high temperature was 35 and the low temperature was 32 degrees. And it's a Testimony to the power of addiction. <laughs> they went out there and smoked their cigarettes anyway. <laughs> so. Well,
1: this, this whole thing was, it was typically so depressing in the winter that people would take vacations for the day, driving uphill yeah. until they could get above the fog and actually see some sunshine. And I had friends who would do that, you know, yeah. every other week, they'd just or, drive uphill. Oh, there's sun up here. <laughs>
0: 40 minutes to the west, 60 minutes to the east, you are up and out of the fog. So the valley fog, this is true. We'll just talk about this briefly. There is a study that found that the incidences of valley fog dropped by 40% over 30 years. And that is significant. And now they speculated in this published article a number of years ago about the possible causes of that. And there were two that are predominantly mentioned, and uh, both have been evaluated. One Warmer night temperatures, steadily increasing night temperatures, the warmer the air is, the better able it is to hold water vapor in gas form, drops below a certain temperature, then the gaseous water vapor turns to visible droplets, which is, which are suspended, that's what we call fog. So higher temperatures meant it would stay as vapor, not as droplets. But the other major factor, and this is an interesting sort of side note, fog typically forms around fine particle matter, stuff suspended in the air, dust. Particulate matter is the beginning, the impetus of much fog, not all fog, but much fog. The famous fogs of London in the early industrial era were because of the soot being pumped out of smokestacks. Well, over the 30-year period from 1940 to 1970, California expanded in population, roadways, highways, cars. All those cars were old-type cars that put out a bunch of junk into the air. And that probably formed the particulate matter, provided the particulate matter around which fog formed. We've cleaned up the cars. So the loss of fog might be temperature related, and it might be simply because the air is cleaner. I know that's hard to imagine. There are other things that make particle matter. So we're not away from fog forever, but uh, that might be a big factor. So those two things, warmer night temperatures, cleaner air, that fog evens out and makes more consistent the chilling hours that we're always talking about for fruit trees and some ornamentals. So we now get in January, It's cold, we're getting the chilling we need, and then we'll have a spike of temperatures up into the mid 70s, even to 80 degrees. Those higher spikes of temperatures can affect the ability of certain deciduous plants to flower and fruit correctly. Flower correctly in the case of say lilacs and peonies, fruit correctly in the case of many, if not most of the deciduous fruit species that we grow. So it, it has implications for that. It makes the newer model of chilling, where we're looking at chilling portions, chilling units instead of chilling hours, even more important because it tells us about the impact of those temperatures above 60 degrees and how they actually negatively affect the tree's ability to go into and come out of dormancy and flower and fruit correctly. We do still believe, because we've seen the evidence, that chilling hours, that little number you see on the tag of the fruit tree you're buying, are a reasonable evaluation for you as to whether you can grow a variety in your area. It says 600 hours, and your local extension folks say, our average winter chilling hours is 400, it's not gonna get what it needs. It so 600 hours here in the Davis area where we average 800 chilling hours, even if that's declining over time, it's a long way down to 600 hours before anybody's gonna have a problem with that variety. We will see some varieties of some fruit trees over time do more poorly in terms of yield. And those will fall out of favor. Chandler Walnut, which needs 800 plus chilling hours. Well, probably won't be the dominant Walnut in the California Walnut industry in 30 to 50 years. But that's one of the implications of losing the valley fog is the effect it has on chilling hours. The other impact it had, and it still has sometimes, is just gonna be less common, so it'll seem more sudden and disturbing. Day after day of dreary weather not only affects us, it affects our plants and it affects some of the things like the flowers in particular on fleshier petaled to use a term thicker petaled flowers like pansies cyclamen every foggy day if you get a little bit of botrytis gray mold going on one of the flowers as it begins to die and finish up, can spread from that into the the petiole, into the nearby leaf, even down into the crown of the plant, and can cause the plant to just mold to death. I mean, I've actually had in day after day where it's rainy and then foggy and rainy and then foggy, as a garden center operator, we have to get out there and groom those flowers off before that mold gets down into the living portion of the plant and does damage to it. So all you've got to do, if we have a number of days of fog and your plants have that gray mold on them, is just Put on some gloves and tug those blossoms off. This is a case where deadheading isn't just a busybody kind of thing. It's actually beneficial to the continued bloom and health of the plant you're growing. So that's something to watch for. And it's visible. That gray mold is called gray mold for a reason. It's right on there. And it's usually attacking decomposing or spent blossoms so it's not a huge problem but it can invade the healthy tissue of the plant this is more for flowering things obviously but it's just a matter of simple grooming what we like to do in our garden center after it rains especially if the next day is going to be overcast or foggy we walk by the flat of cyclamen you just take the flat and you shake it to get the droplets off the blossoms and off the leaves you know just get that free water off of the plant that's usually all it takes the other thing we do as i've mentioned before is when they come in from a grower, they're all packed into a flat. Most garden centers don't do this, but it would be a good practice. Spread them out. Just take the four inch pots that are in a flat and put them into two flats. So there's air between the plants. Once again, as with any disease, sunlight and air movement are your best friend and the disease's worst enemy. Uh, the weather finishing up this pattern appeared that tomorrow is gonna to be dense fog in the morning, areas of dense fog. And we've been getting the kind of Tule fogs that we were famous for years ago. it's been a week it's been a week of it so we're all talking about it tomorrow we'll have more dense fog and then slight change mostly cloudy thursday night 47 degrees so the nights are still pretty warm friday a slight chance of showers and a slight chance of showers friday night they're talking about a tenth to a quarter of an inch in our area out of this but it will have the advantage for those of you that have scattered grass seed for your lawns and cover crop seeds you don't need to water this is all being taken care of by fog or rain And then we will be mostly sunny Saturday, a high of 64 degrees. Saturday night, 44 degrees. Sunday, 63 and the same pattern, continuing right on into Monday with 61 degrees on Tuesday. So mostly sunny, fog in the mornings, slight chance of showers there on Friday night, uh, Friday and Friday night. Soil is plenty moist, great for planting. Uh, Most of us have found we can go out after that major rainstorm we had a couple weeks ago and dig holes and plant things right now. And the soil and the temperatures are still warm enough to plant things from seed. So that's here in the Sacramento Valley. Those of you listening in colder climates may be well on into your winter pattern and wondering when the first snowfall is going to happen. Uh, A little quick PSA here. We like to talk about some of the other programming here at KDRT. Well, Davisville, which has been on the air for almost as long as we have, um, Bill Buchanan interviews local folks who are interesting around Davis and uh, he interviews Davis film critic Derek Bang on the November 15th episode of Davisville terrific year for movies says Derek New York Times recently posted a list of 115 new movies, Oh, I guess there's been a backlog scheduled for release between now and the end of the year way too many to track he says. Enter Derek Bang, film critic for the Davis Enterprise, and his blog, Derek Bang on Film, for our yearly talk about movies to see and movies to avoid during this high season for movie viewing. Uh, The pandemic, it says here, pummeled ticket sales in theaters, and movies are no longer the center of popular culture. Even so, he says, 2021 has been a terrific year for movies. To watch that listen to it, I should say, head on over to KDRT.org, that's KDRT.org, and look for Davisville November 15th program. And KDRT is community radio. That means that we are public radio and we rely on contributions from listeners like you and us to keep our ongoing costs covered. Uh, if you want to donate, if you like what you hear, if you like the idea of community radio, just head to KDRT.org, that's catered.org, and click on the support button.
1: I want to talk about this little list that I've seen here in our mailbox for a few weeks now. And it says, list of plants I don't sell or don't like to sell for various reasons. And so whenever he's talking to someone and they'll say, oh, I want to, and he goes, oh, um, I don't. I
0: don't. Apparently, apparently I make a face under these circumstances, and it's uh, it's clear to the person that I have reservations about that particular plant. Let's put it that way. Now, I make that face for Daphne. All right. I have no problem selling you, Daphne. I have I'm looking right now for a spot to plant my fifth Daphne Odora because it's an incredible shrub and I love it. I would give them about a 25 percent success rate, and that's probably being generous but they're worth it. So I make that face when you walk in and say, I saw Daphne in the Arboretum can you get me one? Why are you grimacing, Mr. Shore? And <laughs> it's yeah, not well, that I'm list, list
1: of plants I don't sell. You have a list of plants you don't it, sell. And it's what not on your list, Don.
0: Daphne's <laughs> not even on that list. It's not on the list because I simply want to have a conversation before I sell you one of those. And I'll give you another example before we get it. That's, that's the
1: conversation grimace, not the yucky yeah. grimace.
0: Yeah, there's a I, I just went through this with a customer who wanted a dwarf threadleaf Japanese maple. Acer palmatum, uh, usually sold as Liciniata, and there's a bunch of cultivars. And they tend to be very lovely, fascinating, mounding trees with very slow growth rate. And um, I will tell them, but first of all, because they're very expensive, you know, these are 25% higher price typically than your average tree, you know, sometimes higher and small. So you're paying way more money for a small plant. Um, the problem I have with them, as one example, is that the leaves always burn in the summer in our part of the valley. They just toast. I mean, I have is one. I
1: thread-like, and the edges burn, and the edges of a thread-like leaf are the entire leaf.
0: Yeah, I mean, the technical way of putting it is the surface area that's subject to burn from salts or low humidity on that particular leaf is higher than it is on your average Japanese maple. I have lots of regular Japanese maples, Acer Palmetto, and they burn. The tips burn, the edges burn. If it's hot, windy, dry, even even in a sheltered location, they can look a little rough. But when you have that very finely divided leaf, all of that finely divided edge will scorch after a two or three day heat wave. And I guarantee it's going to happen even on bigger established plants. Her answer was my arborist says it will do fine. I said, that's absolutely fine. I'm just telling you this before you buy it, before I order it, because next summer, I don't want to say it this way, but I don't really want you coming in and complaining about it because I told you it was going to happen. It's fine. It's cosmetic." It's not hurting the plant all that much, but it does make them pretty unattractive from about you know mid-July until fall. So that certainly reduces their appeal as a high-priced ornamental focal point in the landscape, but you're aware of it. It's not life-threatening.
1: Two Two questions. One is, if someone forces you to sell them a plant that you don't think <laughs> will do well in here, do you tell them and this one is not guaranteed?
0: I don't say it that way. I've made it pretty clear with the fifteen-minute preamble to writing down the special order that I, you know there are. I have reservations about this. So if they come in the next summer, I'm going to say, "Remember that conversation we had."
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> plant, so the second plant, one is plant, gu- how plant guarantees. That... Say what? Finish.
0: Plant guarantees are a controversial topic in the nursery industry. And good reason. This is one of the reasons, you know, we've sold, we've said, here's a problem with this plant. You buy it anyway, you come back later. You know, that doesn't seem like a fair use of my time or resources. So go ahead.
1: So uh, the, the, how tall is that Japanese? You say it's little.
0: Yeah. Like it grows like a, I mean, a very old plant will be six or seven feet with equal spread. It's usually a real focal point. It's usually, this is the problem. It's usually right in the middle of a, beautiful little landscape with interesting accent plants it looks great in the spring there's no question it will look nice till about may and then what happens will have to do with how old it is how well the roots have established how you're watering they're not drought tolerant and where it is i mean if it's getting any afternoon sun i can guarantee that's going to make the problem worse but
1: or the north wind so what about instead of planting that plant if they were to plant cousin it
0: Sure. Acacia. Well, that'd be more sun preferring. I mean, this is the other issue I run into is people want this focal tree. And I say, oh, really, what time of day does it get sun? Well, it's in the shade all morning. Uh, So it's in the sun all afternoon. Okay, that's full sun. (laughs) which We don't consider that shade here in the valley. So anyway, that's just one example. But go ahead and and take a quick look at that list there. And we'll talk about a couple of these. We'll make this an ongoing feature. So
1: is this something that is available on your website, on your no. no, staff
0: is aware of it. <laughs> staff is aware of it.
1: All right. yeah. So I what he's got it's got three columns. I uh, when did you stop selling it? Yeah. What is what what is it? Uh what is its common name and then the cause, the reason you stopped selling it. And I'm looking at the cause column and it goes Crown and Midrat. Crown and Midrat. Crown and root rot, stem yeah. and branch die back. Crown and root rot, stem and branch die back. Crown and root rot, crown and gr- yeah. My goodness, Don. So crown and root rot is the biggest problem in our area for a lot of species.
0: We've had many conversations on this show about Phytophthora cinnamomi. Yeah. Phytophthora cinnamomi. That's crown and root rot. Many, many, many plants are susceptible to it. Some plants are resistant. Some plants are apparently so susceptible to it that they're just chronic problems in our nursery production and in landscaping. And when I've had repeated incidents of people coming back with a particular plant One out of five, two out of five, or over and over in the same spot failing, uh, you know, I begin to make note of this and some of it. it, This may not be a problem if you're listening in a climate that's not as extremely hot as ours. Phytophthora cinnamomai, which is what we call crown and root rot, uh, attacks when plants are stressed. It attacks plants when they're buried too deeply. The stem is covered with soil. Uh, it's a, it's a major problem for us here. If you're way up in the Pacific Northwest, I remember, as I've mentioned previously, I was having a conversation with a, an academic up there about crown rot. We were talking about this plant or that plant. And then I mentioned the parameters for the problem, high temperature, high moisture. And her answer was, no, 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 this is a lower temperature problem. And I said, wait, which Phytophthora are you talking about then? And she mentioned a different species, which is prevalent in that area. And its yeah. its range was cooler than our the range of our much more common crown and root rot organism, Phytophthora cinnamomi. If you jump online and start Googling Phytophthora, neither hers nor ours is what's going to come up first. First, you're going to have to get past all the sudden oak death reports. So That's a coastal California zone issue in Northern California, and it's killing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of trees in Sunset Zone 17 right on the coast the fog belt itself when it came into california 30 years ago we were terrified because it hit so many different species and we were afraid this would just move right into the valley move up and down the state kill a lot of native trees well no good news for the rest of us who don't live there it's very specific to that zone it doesn't even come further into the counties that are bay area zones but that's an example of a disease that has a particular temperature range a particular geographic range and affects those plants we're talking about crown and root rot is a common problem. And you can look through the first four or five on this list and you'll see a a trend. Go ahead and read a couple of them. So,
1: Ciannothus, the Dark Star, and Julia Phelps in particular, and other hybrids, Fremontodendron, Leptospermum. Hey, Don, these are all California natives.
0: Well, no, Leptospermum is New Zealand, but that's okay.
1: But I mean, they're okay. So they're uh, Mediterranean climate. Yeah. Um, May 10, California wax myrtle, Pitispor-
0: We're going to talk about that one in a moment. Yeah, the Ceanothus freemontodendron are California native woody plants. Um, generally speaking, you do well with them in coastal parts of California or anywhere you're on a slope and have water that percolates away from the crown whenever there's any excess water. And when your are temp- where your temperatures are not consistently extremely high, our average high temperature July and August is 93 degrees. And there's certainly many days that are well above that. Um, that's not the case in coastal California. It's not the case even in the Sierra Foothills or the Coast Range, pretty much anywhere. This is a chronic problem with woody plants of California native origin. And it comes up more and more because as municipalities are enforcing landscape requirements in, as part of their drought, toler- drought requirements, I guess you will say or regulations, There's a tendency to move towards California native plants. Here in the Valley, none of those woody plants would be native. I just have to say that, and I have to say it over and over. We're a Valley grassland plant community. If you want to do California native plants in Davis, Woodland, Dixon, you should plant some of the really cool, interesting bunch grasses that would grow here in the Valley. So you know this isn't native here. Fremontodendron is not native here. Manzanitas are not native here. And those are just the top three right there of popular California natives. Those happen to have high susceptibility to Phytophthora to crown rot. Some natives like Toyon don't seem to that seems to be widely adaptable. It's not native here in the valley floor, but it does great here. Bacchorus coyote bush, again, not native here in the valley floor, but does great. And so I have found ceanothus in general, by far the most popular California native plant, and some species of ceanothus in particular, I sell someone five, they come back, four of them have died, I sell them five more, four more die, you know, and that's the pattern It not 100%. It's not 10%, 10%, it's uh, significant losses and a few of them established. And so people need to know that that's true of California natives. It also is true of many Australian plants. Uh, Phytophthora cinnamomai was introduced into Australia 100 years ago and is now considered to be fully established there, just as it is here. And you should assume it's in your soil if you're gardening in Australia, if you happen to be listening down there. I know we have a listener in Queensland. How you doing? And uh, those plants. If overwatered, the, the common rejoinder to this is, well, that's just a watering issue. Well, no, it's not. It's a stress issue as well as a watering issue. So you can get them to establish by watering carefully, correctly, gradually withholding water as the plants establish. That requires some skill. And um, not everyone seems to have those skill sets in terms of managing the irrigation in their landscape. It also means that those plants need kind of different irrigation than the other plants in your landscape. So they definitely need to be zoned for that. it's really emphasized if you wanna try some of these Cianothis, if you wanna plant a free monodendron, you're on your own. I don't even wanna order it for you at this point for a couple of other reasons, but if you wanna try one, um, you're gonna wanna put that in a place where you will withdraw the irrigation by perhaps the third summer, Uh, if it makes it that long, and then you have a pretty good chance of it going well until we have a wet spring. Because the other thing is we don't control the rainfall, we control the irrigation, but we do have years where we have a couple inches of rain in April and even an inch or two in May. And rain in May is devastating for a lot of these plants because it saturates the whole root zone while the soil is warm and the air temperatures are warm. And that's when we get a lot of cases of Phytophthora on otherwise heretofore seemingly healthy so you mentioned Leptospermum, which was my very first case open one, one or two months in uh, way back in fall of 1981, nurseries, wholesalers had lots of New Zealand tea tree. They bloom in the winter time. We brought them in and people just kept coming back. It died. It died. It died. Extremely susceptible to crown rot. I am unaware of any well-established leptospermum scoparium in the Davis area. That doesn't mean a bunch of us haven't sold hundreds and hundreds of them. So they presumably go home and just die and people you know, just figure that's the way it goes. But that's the case of that particular plant, which is from either New Zealand in the case of Leptospermum scoparium or Australia in the case of Leptospermum levigatum. Grow well in the Bay Area, they grow well in coastal Southern California. So a lot of these California natives are not adapted to the high temperatures and dense soils that we have here in the Sacramento and presumably the San Joaquin valleys couple of other odd ones, May 10. May 10. Uh,
1: I've, I've seen a May 10 tree. Is this a different plant?
0: No, this is it. This is the May 10 tree. And it's a beautiful tree. I fell in love with them when I moved up here. It looks like a miniature evergreen weeping willow. It's a yeah. beautiful shiny leaf and... Even when I was learning it as a student and they're walking the Hort class through the Arboretum, there were branches dying back on the large specimen that was in the Davis Arboretum. And my, I remember then because this came up repeatedly over the next few decades. They didn't know what the cause of that dieback was, but they knew that every May 10 seemed to get it. They'll grow fine and then we'll have either a severe drought stress or a winter cold snap or something. And this branch will die and that branch will die. When you see that kind of flagging, we call that where an otherwise healthy tree has a dead branch. It's usually from either Botryospheria or Circospora or one of the other fungal organisms that attack a plant up in the air not down at the ground usually under wet conditions or foggy conditions and it infects a point somewhere on the branch and everything past that point dies and the plant manages to wall it off with protective you know scar tissue and the plant goes on growing so you just prune that out well that's the thing you have to keep doing that throughout the life of a may 10 and it's a frustrating problem. So that's a different thats sort of an aerial bombardment by fungus, not a soil attack. But nevertheless, it's a chronic problem. So I don't like to sell those trees. Let's just do a couple more here.
1: Well, before we get off of that first bunch, um, uh, pittosporum?
0: Yeah, pittosporum. Not...
1: That's, that's mock orange, it's everywhere.
0: Yeah, and Pitosporum Tobira does great. I'm looking out my window at a beautiful beautiful plant that gives me wonderful lemon-scented blossoms in the spring. It's 10 feet from the window. I just open the window, and I love it. I've never had any disease problem on Pitosporum or Pitosporum, if you prefer, Tobira, the, probably the best known of the genus. But widely popular in the San Francisco Bay Area and in Southern California is Pitosporum tenuifolium, or the black stem, Pitosporum, and Pitosporum eugenioides, which looks like that but with kind of wavy leaves. Very attractive, very popular because they're very columnar, upright growers, and there's a bunch of cultivars of Pitosporum tenuifolium, including one called golf ball which is just a little tight growing round mound of a shrub. And it literally looks like a giant could walk along with a golf club and send that off into the, uh, the atmosphere. Um, They all get this problem in the Valley when it's hot and normal watering, you're caring for them perfectly, perfectly correctly. A branch will die and then another branch will die. And then several branches will die and the plant keeps growing. So again, this is just like the problem on the Maytan, but it's so chronic that um, all I do now, I don't stock this plant. I don't order it, I talk people out of it. Now I mostly just diagnose it for people who had it installed by a landscaper and then they want to know what's going on. I had a customer with 18 of them planted around her backyard as a hedge. They all started doing this by the second year. One branch here, one branch there. She wanted to know if there's a spray for that. Said well, probably not, and I wouldn't even bother with that. It's just going to continue. She goes, "What my hedge is going to do this forever?" I said, "Yeah, it is. This is," and I said, and "I hate to say it this way. This is why I don't sell this plant. I don't sell this plant because this is a chronic problem, and uh, it's not a chronic problem in the Bay Area where they're widely sold and planted, and where the nurseries." provided them for this landscaper, this landscaper was apparently unaware that we have this chronic problem with the black stem potosporum here. So I just want you to know about that, and it could well happen in the East Bay. So those of you who are from outside the area, we're getting a little parochial here. East Bay is, let's say, Danville, Lafayette, Walnut Creek
1: over the hill from the fog
0: yeah on our side of the hill so they're they can get as hot in lafayette as we do in davis you know it's on it's on this side it's that far not far enough away from the ocean that they get less of the maritime influence more of the interior influence so it seems to be a stress-related phenomenon if you or your landscaper or your local master gardeners or long-time gardeners are aware of these kinds of problems on a particular plant, take heed of that because that's not going to be in the description of the plant in the nursery catalog. It's not going to be the kind of thing that you're going to get from a designer or landscape architect because they typically don't have long-term experience with these things in the landscape. They just know to spec them by their particular characteristics. And I look over landscape design plans all the time, and I strongly suggest certain plants be pulled out. And the next one on the list, Mirica Californica, had a customer walk in whose landscaper had spec. 21 15 gallon. I don't know why. America Californicas. And this is um, a
1: big tree too. Well, it's,
0: no, it's you're thinking of the other uh myrtle. This is a California wax myrtle, which is a shrub. Uh it's a big if you go over to the to the coastal areas, you'll see this all the time. It's native from the coastal areas. And it is chronically susceptible to crown rot. Here, uh, I would venture that fifty percent of those would be dead within three years. And nevertheless, a designer had installed the, had you know spec them for the landscape. So I saved that guy a whole lot of money by just shifting him over to something else. And I lost or some totally reliable plant. Um, I said I don't mind you putting in three, four, five of these. I would love to be wrong about this plant. I would love to be wrong about Pittosporum tenuifolium. You can grow an individual specimen out with minimal pruning more open growth habit and have a lovely plant. A big part of the problem is the clipping, the constant clipping of these, these types of plants, where you're using them as hedges. You're making a denser growth habit, which simply invites fungus. You're, um, you're pruning constantly. If you happen to do it on a plant that happens to be vulnerable to an organism that attacks through the cut wound, You're opening it up to that if you do it when it's about to rain or when it's raining or foggy or something like that. So you can perhaps with more natural growing conditions and drier conditions as you water more correctly and maybe even thinning them out for a little better air movement because sunlight and air movement are the enemies of disease. (laughs) Come back full circle, haven't we? (laughs) You can probably grow this. You could have your hedge a bit of sphorum tenue folium. Just be aware that you're going to have an ongoing dieback. Problem. And as a nursery owner, I would prefer not to have to talk to you about that three to five years from now. So I prefer to sell you something that'll succeed. Let's do the next three, and then we'll save this topic for, for ongoing.
1: There's a, a few more that have the crown and rot as their Reason that he's not selling them. Um, I'm going to say Sunset Gold, Breath of Heaven.
0: Yeah, this is an important one. Coleonema Sunset Gold has become ubiquitous in the landscape trade. It is a popular plant because it has this soft, feathery, golden green foliage, and it's replaced junipers in a lot of landscapes. That's good. You know, most of us aren't big fans of junipers for one reason or another. Sunset Gold, oh, it's been what 25 years on the market now. We've sold them like crazy. They are just dying. And it's clearly Phytophthora. And I don't know if it's a nursery industry production issue that starts it because this is a big problem in the nursery industry. It's very, very difficult for nurseries to not have Phytophthora. But these are plants where people are buying 10, 12 of them, putting them in. And the classic pattern with crown and root rot is you have 12 of them in the same exposure, you think, you're watering them all the same, you think, and three of them die. And the other nine are fine. That's a very typical Phytophthora pattern. If we were to get down on our hands and knees and get down there and look at the crown of the plant, we'd probably find that they were planted too deep because that's one of the easiest ways to invite Phytophthora crown rot is put dirt up against the stem and keep it wet. But it also just happens sometimes there's a little bit of a grade difference. You know, that's where water collects when there's excess water or whatever. And sometimes there's no apparent difference. And the coleonema has been moving into this territory of 10, 20, 30% loss rates from plantings in normal soils, properly irrigated, that I'm backing off on it. And I'm just not stocking it routinely as I used to do. And when it's on someone's design plan, I mention these issues Say so I'm fine with you planting these, just be aware that you might be coming back to me a year from now, either to replace the plant, which you can do, you know, the phytophthora is in the soil, but if you water correctly, the next plant might be just fine, or replace it with something that, fits in your design scheme and doesn't get that. You know, a couple of cases we've swapped in a particular cultivar of grevillea that I looked on Australian plant lists and found appears to be resistant to Phytophthora. Well, heck, let's try it here in California as well. So that one in particular, because millions of these are sold, I want people to be aware of it. And again, this is probably not an issue for you in the coastal areas, probably more of an issue where there's high temperatures that are a factor in the infection and spread of Phytophthora. Let's do the next two real quick.
1: Okay, so we've got Hardenbergia and Solia, which are creepers, and then Gaura. So Hardenbergia is the lilac vine, happy wanderer.
0: Yeah, and that's become really popular when it first came on the market, again, about 25 years ago. We're again talking about an Australian species here. Beautiful, royal purple flowers in the middle of winter. You know, I can tell you as a retailer, if it's royal purple, it will sell even if it dies. <laughs> it doesn't matter. There, there's a subculture out there that likes deep purple no matter what, including me. Uh, there's lots. Of, it's a very, very popular color. And midwinter, how can you go wrong with that? We'd all noticed, and there, there's this was a conversation amongst uh, hort professionals, which I guess you can call me if you like, and also some designers and stuff around the area, around the Bay Area. We all kind of realized this plant lives five to seven years. That's just the way it is, and that's great as long as you know that when you plant. I have no problem with people planting a short-term landscape feature like that as long as you know that that's what you're doing, and it grows vigorously. It's a great plant where you have a new house, and your neighbor has a new house, and you've got two stories each other, and you want to have a fence extension while you're waiting for the shrubs and trees to grow up to provide some privacy. Heerenberg will get to the top of that fence extension the first summer and it'll spread out over it by the second summer it'll be a solid mass of foliage a very dense. uh, vigorous vine and those flowers in the winter if you're in usda zone nine or 10 sunset zones. Uh, eight, nine, 14 to 24 we bloom right through the winter. And it's great. And then after four or five years, we just kept having this thing where the plant would die and it's clearly dying at the base and it's clearly dying appears to be from phytophthora. I could be something else. But the best evidence I have on the one on my property that died was phytophthora. Salia heterophylla the bluebell creeper, one of my favorite ground covering vines to plant under eucalyptus trees that's where it was first introduced for because it grows under eucalyptus trees southern California listeners are probably. Well aware of this vine because of its use there again five to 10 years they do seem to die out and it typically appears to be phytophthora so i'm not going to not sell them, I just want people to be aware that. This may be a transitional plant in your landscape, and a Hardenbergia. That's a classic use for it. It gives you quick screening, gives you privacy that you're after, and then by the time the shrub, you know, five years in, your shrubs are up, your trees are giving the privacy. You can take that vine out, and it's gotten a little messy by then anyway. So as long as you're aware of that, you know, the caveat emptor, as they say, buyer beware. You just see it and buy it and plant it. Well, please be aware that that plant seems to have a fairly short lifespan. That's true of some woody plants: golden bush, daisy, lavenders. You know, we know that they tend to have a lifespan. Yes, individual plants can live a lot longer, but they tend to go three to five years.
1: And then the last one was the gaura. Yeah, (laughs) gaura is a a short. Triennial,
0: isn't it? Yeah, it should be. It's Supposed to be. Gara is a is a Texas wildflower that's been turned into one of the hot commodities in the nursery business. It's uh, the original form had long, long wands of white flowers, three to four feet high. Whole bunch butterfly of butterfly
1: bush, yes, everything. But, butterfly
0: something, uh, but yeah. uh, the, the common name I can't remember. But it's uh, it, it gives a lot of color. It blooms in dry landscapes. reseeds very happily to the point of you know, not quite becoming a nuisance, but you've got to be aware of the seedlings. Each plant lasts two to three years. And this is a chronic problem in the nursery industry is they just die in the pot. I and mean, this is one of those plants that's really frustrating to us, like Gerber daisies. You know, they we, they sell like crazy, but significant loss rates in the containers because the irrigation management is very challenging. Gara is moving into the territory of a plant that I don't like to stock for that reason. Just a poor success rate. Now, those of you doing xeric Landscapes and you want some color, don't hesitate to plant gar. Look for it in the milder times of year, please. You're gonna do a lot better planting it in the spring or fall than in the middle of the summer. But we'll continue with this topic because there's a fair number of plants that I don't sell, don't recommend. You'll see them at a lot of garden centers where their feeling is you make the choice, we'll just give you the information. I don't let you make the choice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Will you give us the information?
0: And then I don't sell the plant because I gave you the information. So why should I stock it?
1: Why would we want to buy that? Yeah, yeah. unless you're unless you're saving other people from being running the risk of buying a plant that isn't going to do. Well. You're
0: buying it as a public service to take it out yes. of the inventory, right? There that's it. Yeah. That's no, it. I mean, Here's the thing: me and I'll... those
1: fiddly figs. That's that's my excuse, Don. <laughs>
0: There's a lot of gardeners who are savvy enough, they'll say something like, well, the problem with cyanosis is how you you manage the irrigation. I say, yes, that's absolutely true. That is a big part of the problem. It's not the only problem. But yes, there are established cyanosis around the area. It's rare for one to go more than five to 10 years. Uh, Part of it is our soils hold nutrients so well, and a lot of the native plants, getting back full circle, and then we'll move on, a lot of those woody plants come from areas with fairly unnutritious soil, fairly poor soils, and they grow pretty slowly and steadily. I have planted Ciannothus on my farm. I'm on rich agricultural soil that has high content of even things like nitrogen. They grow like crazy. I mean, I put in a Ray Hartman Ciannothus. By the second year, it was 12 feet tall. The blooms were spectacular. I have pictures of that, thank goodness, because in the third year, it died. The vigorous it growth
1: out. It, it, was, they, it was so stressed out from having done too much work too fast.
0: Yeah, you want to manage them more or less as if they were getting just natural rainfall. Although in the first summer, because they're in nursery soil, not native soil, you have to do some irrigation. And many California natives are fine with intermittent irrigation during the summer to keep them growing. But you don't want to water very often and you definitely don't want to grow them rich and fast and uh, this is the biggest problem with ceanothus in our area and then back to the fremont there's just such high loss rates on that add that to the fact that the Leaves and the flowers have these extremely irritating hairs on them. I, you know, I just don't touch them anymore. If someone wants to order it, I'll order it, but please come down and make pick sure it up. they
1: put it in the back corner yeah. of the yard. Yeah. Don't put it anywhere any, any, any kids could ever get into it. Or people mm-hmm. walking by. We have a beautiful Fremontad, aden- we had a beautiful Fremontaden <laughs> at the meeting house, but it was like in the back corner, 20 feet away. Yes. Someone would have to climb over all these other bushes to get there yeah it's, itchy. it's not there anymore
0: yeah. yeah they're very itchy plans so all right okay, Next okay so
1: i i we, i'm changed the order i want to go to this one because we've been talking about chrono and all that sort of stuff i yeah. want to go to this message this is from jeff and he says, uh, dear Don and Lois, I live in Encinitas, California, right up the road from Don's ancestral homeland. That's correct. Uh, yes.
0: Wonderful my, climate.
1: <laughs> my property is approximately two miles from the ocean as the crow flies, a USDA zone 11, sunset zone 24. Yep. I recently listened to your episode on Phytophthora and found it very informative. My question relates to the four citrus trees I have in my backyard, a, year, a a eureka lemon, a beers lime, a caracara orange, and a seedless tangerine, forget the variety. All are about two years old, except the lime, which is one year old. I was not there on the day that these all were planted by my gardener, but they are all planted too deep in the ground. And as you can hopefully see from the attached photos, have settled below the grade level by anywhere from four to six inches. Yeah. Now, do you want me to read all the rest of the uh, he talks about how he waters and things and at the end he says. So would the right thing to do be a uproot them and add additional soil, uh, fill soil so that they sit slightly above grade, which seems like a good chance that might my, my kill them in doing that. Or B, scrape away the other soil in the area to bring all the surrounding grade down to the level where the crowns currently sit or C, do something else. Yeah. And that- then he pictures and the pictures are. Well, Donald ex- Donald have his description, but when I looked at this picture, I was going, I see the trunk of the tree. I don't see any crown flare right. when it gets to the dirt. It's like going straight down. I have no idea how much below the soil level that crown flare is because I don't think they're, I think they're buried even deeper than he thinks they are.
0: Yeah, and that's an issue. I mean, we you live in an area, Encinitas is a wonderful climate, and by the way, I'll be very curious how well those citrus do for you because my father right near UC San Diego would plant citrus and the sweet ones like the Mandarin never got sweet they didn't get the heat input that's necessary now you're a little further inland than he was but not by that much I mean, if you can hear or smell the ocean. It's cool and mild and and one of the most wonderful gardening climates in the world. Your lemon should do great. I'll be curious how your Mandarin does, because he would complain to me after I gave him a Mandarin and he grew it for years. It grew fine, it flowered, it fruited, and the fruit would not turn color properly because it didn't get the chilling that it needs for that and it never got sweet. So he would use the fruit and he loved the flavor, but he always had to juice it and mix it with something else no problem, goes great with tequila. Uh, But he he was not happy with it in terms of its production as a Mandarin. So you might have an issue with the varieties. They're planted way too deep. There's no other way to put it. I can't even see the root crown, the root flare. Our citrus grower years ago, chatting with the owner of Four Winds Growers, he said, I wanna see the first root exposed. I wanna see the very first root at the base there where the root flare is actually exposed. Because he, he, he found that if he would say that when he was talking to groups, there was no risk of them burying it too deep because they would be able to see that. They would be concerned, well, it won't, be a, won't it be a stress on the plant to have that root exposed. No, no, you can see exposed roots all the time on trees. That's not a problem. The problem will be if you bury it.
1: And this, these from the pictures, not only is it buried, but it's sitting in a pit.
0: That's a big concern. I mean,
1: it's like there's, it's, it's a very, <laughs> it's a very deep,
0: but yeah, see, what the guy did was obviously dug a very large hole, and I run into this with with you know like young men who come to work for me and they want to impress me by how big a hole they dig for the plant. And we don't want to go deep. We want to go wide, not deep. If you go deep, I guarantee it's going to settle and you'll have a low spot over time that will collect water when there's excess water. Even in Encinitas, you know when you get those storms. Your soil type makes a big difference. Our heavier soils here, that's going to be a real issue. If you have a slope at all, hypothetically you could go in and pull away soil a grade around the plant create a, a level slightly elevated spot right around that plant so the water flows around and uh, you know that we don't have those slopes here there's no way to do that in the davis area we're completely flat i don't think from your picture that you have that particularly in the case of the pit what's frustrating is that these trees look healthy you know most of them they're growing and digging them up will be a stress on the plant but i guarantee if you don't number of years down the road you're going to run into a problem and i very commonly end up diagnosing phytophthora on 20 25 year old citrus trees that were doing great until we had a a tropical storm in the late spring or something where there's a lot of moisture when the weather was getting warmer which also happens in southern california occasionally you know those those gulf um, uh, monsoon storms that pass over san diego they don't usually get to the coast but they have in the past at times. And that's when the tree suddenly just starts dropping a lot of leaves, declines. You'll often see staining or sapping on the trunk at that point, and it's gone. There's no way to save it then. Uh, so this is something that you can go along for years without any problem. Then suddenly the conditions favor crown infection. So if they were mine, I hate to say this, I would probably go ahead in mild weather, which happens to be right now down there, uh, go ahead and dig them up carefully, elevate them so they're up above grade slightly, make a basin around them to water. That's fine, but not where water is going to be standing and collecting around the crown. I think in the long run, your trees will be healthier. I will say about Phytophthora on citrus, root stocks vary as to their susceptibility to it. And I have that information. I'll try to dig it out and maybe talk about it next week a little bit. When it comes to, we did, we did a presentation on gray water a few weeks back and my part of the presentation was phytophthora and the problems with gray water and having moisture around plants and some are susceptible and some are not and in particular with fruit trees there were differences in the rootstock as to phytophthora susceptibility so if you happen to remember what they were grafted onto that would be useful information So if you happen to have the tags or you remember where they're from, or have any indication of even who the grower is, I could dig a little deeper and figure out whether the particular rootstock you have is more of a problem. I'll try to remember to talk about this a little bit before we get into the bare root season for the deciduous fruit trees, not citrus, because some of the rootstocks that you would be buying on are more susceptible and some are less susceptible. And well, I don't like to go too much into rootstock differences because I think it's a little confusing, if you're in an area with dense soils, this might be a reasonable consideration as you're selecting your trees. And it may be a factor in how well your citrus are going to do. And for all you know, they could all be on different rootstocks. But I will say that most of the growers in California seem to be migrating towards the C35 rootstock. And I'll get you more information on the susceptibility of that one. But if they were mine, planted that deep, planted that low, I would redo it.
1: Can he? Uh go to one of them where the, the trunk's going straight in the ground and simply dig away around that until he gets down to the roots and find out how much lower it really is.
0: That's what I would do first. Yeah, e- my excavate. Guess
1: is it's, it's, you know, maybe four to six inches below where he thinks the, the soil is.
0: Yeah, and then you've got a problem. But if it's just a, an inch or two down, at least start pulling that soil away. The first thing I would do, yes, what Lois is suggesting, I would do an anthropological dig. I would carefully <laughs> excavate around the crown, start pulling that soil away, See how much of a, you know, if it's an inch down, well, heck, you can probably just regrade a little bit, especially if you have any kind of a slope in your yard at all. Um, if it's more than that, then digging it up is probably worth it. A year or two in the ground, you're going to be digging up the equivalent of a 15-gallon tree. Uh, it'll obviously stress the plant, but doing it in mild weather there's a pretty good chance of success. And I think it'll make a big difference in terms of the long-term success of that. Again, I'm a little concerned about your varietal choice there. So it might be that the mandarin isn't worth all this effort, but lemons, very popular in the coastal areas and do very well. So hope that helps. Good. And, and this, is a, this is a really good example of why it's very important to supervise planting crews because i see huge problems in large commercial installations when i go through them shortly after installation i can point at beds and say we're going to lose 20 or 30 percent of the plants in this bed because they're planted too deeply now we're in a stress zone for phytophthora here with the heat and the dense soil and the you know and then commercial ma- irrigation management is a whole nother topic in and of itself but it's the proper training of the planting crew is the biggest thing. You have to inspect and correct roots, and you have to plant plants correctly. Those two factors would probably make more difference in the success of a landscape than anything else except proper plant selection.
1: Um, last thing on replanting a plant, digging up a, a tree and, and replanting it. I see one of these trees is, has a lot of fruit on it. Yeah. Would you recommend removing the fruit before you do this uh, transplant?
0: Everyone's going to everyone's going to say yes. If it were mine, I wouldn't. I would just let it ripen and harvest it and enjoy it. I hate to be be uh, cynical, but that may be the last fruit you enjoy off that tree. <laughs> so
1: would you? So, but.
0: Citrusy, <laughs> yes. All right. It's let's, 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 got okay, let's,
1: something going.
0: Let's back up here. It is obviously putting energy into fruit that it should be putting into root growth and top growth. We generally recommend removing fruit from young trees anyway, because they should be putting their energy into growth. Do we recommend that? Do we actually follow that ourselves? Of course not. You know, if it's got a fruit (laughs) on it, let the fruit ripen. Are you kidding? Maybe, you know, the first grapefruit off that tree. Uh, So it's one of those things that in theory, yes, because it is a, a use of the tree's energy that should be directed to better purposes. So. Any any
1: particular time to do that with the citrus tree. Any time should work, right?
0: Mild weather. Encinitas, by definition, is almost always mild weather, but I would say uh, spring, fall, even midwinter is fine for that. And the only reason I wouldn't, the only time I probably wouldn't do it there is uh, Santa Ana season, when the Santa Ana winds are blowing, because that's a very risky time to move anything with a low humidity. Thanks for the letter. Those are great pictures. This is an excellent example of how to send us a question because uh, he asked his question specifically. We know exactly where he is and the pictures were outstanding. So if you have a similar garden situation, DavisGardenshow at gmail.com is a great way to get the information to us.
1: Well, I'm going to use this uh, letter that we just had as a segue into a USDA zone confusion email. (laughs) Yeah this is from john in fair oaks hi don and lois i'm considering an Arborvitae emerald green for yep. my morning sun only yard in fair oaks which i believe is rated zone nine for both the usda and sunset yep. most of the printed literature says that this plant is quote hardy in usda zones three through eight unquote yep. But since USD zones are based only on the coldest expected winter temperature, how can there be a range of zones for a plant? Uh, Is this... Is the implication that my zone nine is too hot for this plant, even though USDA zones have nothing to do with heat? Thank you for any help you can give me on understanding this USDA zone
0: confusion. Oh, thank you. This is one of my pet peeves, and I promise not to rant for too long about it. These plants like this come into my garden center all the time. Forsythia, spirea, uh, flowering quince are just three examples of flowering shrubs that come in routinely that say on the label USDA zones four through eight. Yes, we are in USDA zone nine. We're in 9B, basically. We're kind of on the edge of 9A to 9B. USDA zones are solely a measure of the cold temperature that a plant can tolerate. That's it. it. says nothing about the heat that a plant can tolerate. So it is completely inappropriate for anyone ever to put an upper zone range on a USDA zone listing. Completely inappropriate. And I have to explain this all the time. Lilacs are a great example. Can we grow lilacs here, Lois? Yeah. Yeah. I've got 15 of them and they bloom beautifully and um, they come into my nursery labeled USDA zones, I don't know, three through eight. Sometimes it even says three through seven and people bring them up to the counter and say, what zone are we? And I say, we're zone nine. Would you like to see pictures of my lilacs? Because they do just fine here. So it's, and it's, what's arbitrary about the USDA zones one factor that kind of, is a concern for plant professionals is that they're just based on arbitrary 10 degree differences. You know, the 30 to 30 degrees bottom is a USDA zone 10, 20 degrees zone nine and so forth. And then they at least broke them into nine a nine B. So that's 25 degrees is the difference between zone nine a and nine B. Well, we get below 25 degrees here. Not very every winter, but we do routinely. We did just three years ago, get down to 23 degrees. So are we zone 9A or are we zone 9B? We usually don't get much below 25. So I guess you could say we're usually zone 9B. That's not very helpful. What does usually mean? But the main point of your question is they are not heat zones. They're strictly cold hardiness zones. So no label should ever say anything other than how low it can go. Uh, It's useful to me to know that that can't go below zone four. Not that I've ever gardened or had a retail nursery in zone three or four, but it's a big issue for folks in those zones. If it says upper zone eight, ignore that. Honestly, I don't happen to know how well the emerald green Arborvitae is going to do in your yard. I don't, I've been a little nervous about this one for another reason, but um, it's not because of a cold issue and it's not because of a heat issue. Um
1: so is the lower number on a USDA zone a lower temperature?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So we're in zone.
1: What's a zone one?
0: Oh, really cold. (laughs) Like, wait, like.
1: Antarctica?
0: Uh, No, Minnesota. (laughs) Minnesota. Yeah, yeah. uh, Michigan. It's only
1: 40 degrees below. Well, no, that's 60 degrees below.
0: What the issue is uh, uh, someone who edited the chart of bamboo hardiness of the bamboos for north america um i know that there are important temperatures that don't have anything to do with those exact zones you know 32 degrees 30 degrees is a, is a tropical plant's going to be killed a subtropical plant will be injured that's an important thing to know 25 degrees a subtropical plant that's marginal will be further injured so bougainvillea's hibiscus uh, 25 degrees and you're going to have some real problems with it 20 to 21 degrees, you're going to be getting woody tissue killed, and and the plant will be substantially damaged, which may not matter to you if it's an ornamental vine or something. But if it's a tree, we obviously aren't going to sell it if that's likely to happen on a regular basis. It does get into the question of averages versus extremes. And uh, we do have extreme events that would suddenly drop us into a different USDA zone if we suddenly use that as our guide. In 1990, it got to 16 degrees in the Davis area, which would put us in USDA zone 7, I'd believe. Well, we're not going to just take our nursery and go, okay, we're not selling any of those zone nine plants anymore because once we got to 16 degrees, but when it happened again, eight years later, it did make us revise our tree recommendations. I think it's important that a tree be hardy even to extremes. I don't care if a shrub is killed to the ground, but if the tree in your backyard, like your jacaranda or something like that is likely to be killed to the stump on a regular basis, I have trouble recommending it because it's a tree, it's an important part of the landscape and it can become dangerous. The 1990 freeze killed eucalyptus trees all over the San Francisco Bay Area completely. And then those dead trees were standing there when there was a fire a few years later. In the Oakland Hills, it was quite famous because it leapt from dead treetop to dead treetop. So those become issues with, in terms of whether we ethically should recommend A tree. Shrubs, screens, hedges, okay, if it's a little marginal, have at it, have some fun. Arborvitae emerald green uh, has become incredibly popular in many parts of the country. I remember when it came on the market, it was being touted for its heat tolerance in the southeast, and that's really important because trees down in the southeastern United States have to deal with not only high temperature, but very, very high humidity, and some trees simply don't take that. There's a lot of diseases that attack plants when it's Muggy, honestly, muggy, you know, hot and hot and humid. And this one proved to be excellent in that area. So you would frequently see the comment on it. Heat tolerant. Well, yes. How about dry? heat? How about dry heat? We don't know because it doesn't say that it was just talking about heat tolerant as in Georgia. Okay, Alabama, places where 80
1: degrees 80% humidity.
0: Or 90-something degrees and 90-something percent humidity, yeah. which is very unlivable, and some trees agree with me on that. So uh, its tolerance for that has made it very, very, very popular. You go to websites like fastgrowingtrees.com, which seems to get gazillion hits on the Internet. It's because
1: you keep talking about it, Don.
0: Hey, everybody, you you type in fast-growing tree, I guarantee it's going to be the first thing uh, that come comes on. up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And they, they sell a lot of them, and nurseries back there sell these like crazy. My issue has been that almost every one of these new – highly touted evergreen conifer hedge screening type of plants. After 10 or 20 years in the valley, we've started having problems with them. Dieback is the most common one. They're not particularly drought tolerant, even though they may be touted as being drought tolerant. Once again, you have to read between the lines, you mean drought tolerant in Georgia? Or do you mean drought tolerant in the Sacramento Valley? Drought tolerant in Georgia means can go two weeks without rainfall. (laughs) Drought tolerant in the Sacramento Valley means You're going to have to irrigate it less than other parts of your landscape because we get no rain here from May 1 through October. So it's a different, more profound kind of drought tolerant requirement here. Um, I'm still skeptical on this one because I've been through this with other conifers that have been introduced to the trade. I think it'd be great if you try some. Probably expect they're not going to be particularly drought tolerant in the valley. Conifers in general need 30 to 40 inches of rainfall a year. So you've got to apply that. By irrigation for the half of the year that we don't get rainfall and um, it's fast growing sometimes fast growing plants kind of fall apart after a while but it's perfectly hardy in terms of temperature and that's really my pet peeve is this use of upper range on usda zones sunset zones are much more detailed as people are using them less and less but they tell you something about the actual climate if you tell me you're in sunset zone 14 I don't need to know which city you're in. I know that what your climate is like. If you tell me you're in USDA zone nine, you could be in Gainesville, Florida. You could be in Crescent City, California. You could be in Redding, California. You could be in Brownsville, Texas, and you could be in parts of New Orleans. What are those All five? Of clim- we
1: are going to grow different plants.
0: <laughs> what do those five places have in common? One thing. Winter cold temperature range. That's it. They don't have anything else in common in terms of high temperatures in the summer, rainfall, any other factors. It just tells you how cold they can get. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore
1: and Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.